Welcome to the Faith Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. I'm Pastor Carrick Butler II. We believe today's message will empower you to make Jesus famous in every area of your life. Here's today's message. One of our foundational scriptures for this series is Galatians chapter 6, verse 10. We said, as we have therefore opportunity, let us do good unto all, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. Now go to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38, one of the other foundational scriptures for the series. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 38. And it says, now the just shall vacation in faith. Use faith in emergencies. Use faith when pastor talks about it. Use faith when they're in church. Live by faith. Meaning faith is supposed to be a lifestyle. You know, just using faith on Sunday mornings when you're at church doesn't make it a lifestyle. Using faith for an emergency does not make it a lifestyle. It's just like saying, well, I had a veggie smoothie once. I ran a mile sometime in my life. And I stretched and touched my toes once in my life. I am a fit and healthy person. It doesn't work that way. It's what you do consistently that makes it a lifestyle. So we're supposed to consistently live by faith if we want faith to be our lifestyle. So if faith is our lifestyle, it's what we do every day. We get so good at it, we use our faith on purpose. And we do it so often that it becomes a second nature as breathing. Jesus commanded us to have faith in God. It was a command, not a suggestion. We looked at it a few weeks ago when Jesus said, have faith in God. I used the example. I said, would you like a cookie? That's a question and suggestion. You could say, no, I don't want a cookie. It's different if I went up to you and said, have a cookie. Jesus didn't say, would you like to have faith in God today? He said, have faith in God. Well, what about my job? Have faith in God. What about my family? Have faith in God. What about the economy? Have faith in God. What about my doctor report? Have faith in God. What about the election? Have faith in God. God. It is our divine command. And this is our lifestyle of faith and trust toward God, which means if this is our lifestyle, the foundation of every decision we make is faith in God and living by faith. So that means decisions we make, if you're single, how you date, the foundation is faith in God. If you're married, how you relate to your spouse, the foundation is faith in God. If you have kids, the ways you raise your kids, the foundation is faith in God. Faith in God must direct every decision we make. So say it with me. Say, we live by faith. We are building our family, our house, our church by faith and on faith. We are the house of faith. And we are better together because we are faith. We're all in. 
for our family, for our church, for our community, and for what God has called us to do. So we have been saying that we are the house of faith. So I want you to think about something real quick. If your house is the house of faith, what is the symbol of your house? Would it be this lovely shield of faith on the pulpit? Or would it be something like, well, I won't even show it to you yet. What is the shield over your house? Because I have a question for you today, which is the title of my message. Just got one question. Is your home the house of faith? Or is it a haunted house? Is your home the house of faith? Or is it a haunted house? Is the shield and emblem of your house a shield of faith? Or is it rest in peace? Is your home the house of faith or a haunted house? Ask your neighbor. Say, hey, which one is yours? See, in the spirit, does your house look like the thriller video? Is your house the walking dead? What does your house look like? You know, people do the, this time you have to do zombie 5Ks and 10Ks, and you don't even need to join because you got enough zombies in your house. <laughs> so is your home the house of faith or a haunted house? See, there are decisions and choices that you can make that open the door for the enemy to come in and haunt your house and wreck your life. So many Christians call advancements by Satan attacks. Oh, Satan was really busy in my life. He's been attacking me. He did this. He did that. And they call it all types of attacks. But the truth of the matter is they let him move in, set up shop, and have a carnival in their home. Oh, Satan's been attacking me. Of course he is. He's your roommate. You open the door and says, I have a guest room just for you. Your bed is made. Here's a mint on your pillow, Satan. There are decisions that you make. Choices that you make that open the door for the enemy. A lot of people try to blame, well, God did this to me. God did it. God made the enemy do it. God didn't make the enemy do nothing. It's not even a question, did God do this? It's not even a question, did God open the door? He didn't open the door. You opened the door. So is your home the house of faith or a haunted house? Go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. Is your home the house of faith or a haunted house? Can't be my house, Pastor. See, I'm in church today. There's a lot of church-going people that are Satan as a roommate. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. Very simple scripture. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 27. I want you to read it, read it with me. Neither give place to the devil. Neither give place to the devil. That word place there in the Greek means landmass or foothold. Landmass or foothold. A foothold is a secure position from which further progress may be made. A foothold is a secure position from which further progress may be made. A secure position from which further progress can be made. 
Have you given Satan and his demons a secure position in your home from which further progress can be made? Of course not, Pastor. Why would I do that? Some people say that they haven't given Satan a secure position in their life because they aren't involved in the occult or witchcraft, even though they are. What do you mean, Pastor? I'm a Libra. I'm a Scorpio. Hmm, Witchcraft. (laughs) See, some of you confuse everybody on your Facebook feed. One day it's, we are faith. Yeah, faith people. Next, I'm a Libra. (laughs) See, I know. Laughter can mean conviction. I get it. So you let, quote, unquote, the stars direct your future instead of turning to the one who made the stars. So, well, Pastor, I'm not involved in that. I just smoke a little weed every once in a while. It's legal in Canada and Colorado. It might be legal here. So let's talk about that just for a moment. Let's go back to some ancient practices. And there are some false religions. The way they would get their prophetesses to connect with the spirit world They'd swing them over a vat of different drugs to get them high. So they would contact the spirit world, and they'd come back with another voice and speak the oracles of their God. Who are you contacting on the other side? See, I have a friend of mine who was involved uh, with a, was a leading artist about 15 years ago or so, and he was one of the number one artists of that time. His song was everywhere on the radio. And he was in a backslidden state, and so he was on the tour. And so when they were making music behind the scenes, they would look at him and say, uh, your music's too churchy. Now, he didn't do any church chords, any church songs, but he was anointed, so it kind of came out in his music. So what they did to create a song that they felt would really be a winner, they got high. And after they got high, they would have the inspiration of what music would move the culture. That's how they contacted the other side. Some of you say, oh, it's just a little bit of weed. Who are you contacting? But no, that's not you. That was 9 a.m., right? It's like, pastor, it's not me. I didn't open the door. I'm not involved with witchcraft or the code or any type of way. I don't do anything that bad. But see, it's not only the overtly demonic things that open the door for Satan to have a secure position. But there are things that look normal, things that look so human that they're overlooked and you make excuses for it. There are things that look so normal and so human, like, oh, that's okay, because you don't realize it's giving Satan a foothold in your life. Go to 1 Peter chapter 5, let's look at one of them. Some people say, oh, I'm fighting against the devil. How you fight against them if you let them in your house? It's like not liking bugs, especially mosquitoes. You know, none of us like, I don't know if you like mosquitoes, but I don't like mosquitoes. I'll speak for me. You know, we outside, it rains, and there's bugs biting, and you doing the southern dance of smacking your legs to kill the mosquito before it bites you. But you can spray all you want, slap mosquitoes all you want. If you leave the door and all the windows open to your house, they can come in and bite you. 
You can shout all you want. You can plead the blood all you want. You can anoint your doors and windows with oil. I believe in all that. You can use your authority. But if you leave the door open to Satan, he's going to march right on in. First Peter chapter 5. Verse 5. Likewise, or in the same way, you younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. Say humility. For God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Say humble. humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time or at the set time. Biblical humility, as we've taught, is yielding to God's word, God's plan, and God's way. Biblical humility is yielding to God's word, God's plan, and God's way. Pride is arrogance and having an excessively high opinion of yourself. The Bible says you should think highly of yourself, but not more highly than you ought. Pride is being arrogant and having an excessively high opinion of yourself. Therefore, as a result of your arrogance and your excessively high opinion of yourself, you choose your own path instead of God's path. You're basically saying, I know better than God. Well, pastor, I don't do that. Well, let's just keep reading. Casting all your care upon him, for he cares for you. Care is defined as worry, anxiety, and distractions. This word distractions means that which draws you in a different direction and causes an anxious care. That which draws you in a different direction and causes an anxious care. The humble cast their cares on God. The prideful carry their cares, worries, and anxieties. The humble cast their cares on God. The prideful carry their cares, worries, and anxiety. Here's how it works. Here's how care and anxiety is a distraction. You start out following the plan of God, yielding to the will of God. I'm going to do whatever God wants me to do. I submit to his will. And you're doing good for a little while. But then a thought comes. You get a little bit worried about something. You start getting kind of anxious about something. You start becoming full of care. And instead of looking at God's word, his will, his plan, and getting before him, you start looking in another direction. Well, this faith stuff's not working. I gave, but where's my return? I've been praying, but where's my, where's what I've been praying for? And you get distracted. You stop looking at God's way. And you start looking at another way, your way. And instead of looking at God's way, you begin to come over here and do your own thing and go your own way. That's pride. You step from yielding to God's way, and now you are the proud, which that verse says God resists the proud and gives more grace to the humble. So you put yourself in a position to be resisted in a position not to receive more grace. What's also dangerous about this position is what the next verse says. Be sober, be alert, be vigilant, because your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion, doesn't say he is one, he's acting like one, walks about seeking whom he may devour, whom resists steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same afflictions and pressures are accomplished in your brethren that are in the world. So if there's whom he may devour, there's whom he can't devour. The prideful can be devoured. Those who carry their care, their anxiety, and their worries can be devoured. Those who get distracted from God's plan and go do their own thing can be devoured. 
But see, the thing is, worry seems so natural. It seems so human. Some of us even taught growing up that if you want to be a good parent, you need to worry about your children. If you're going to be a good American, you need to worry about your country. If you're going to be good at your job, you need to worry about your job. All that is teaching you is how to be devoured by the enemy. You're supposed to cast every worry, every care, every anxiety upon Jesus because he cares for you. Mark 4 tells us that one of Satan's battle strategies is to use care or anxiety or worry to rob us of the production of the word of God in our lives. Satan will try to sow a seed of anxiety into your thought life, but you don't have to take it. Not every thought that's in your head is from you. Just because you think it doesn't mean it came from you. A lot of people don't have a bunch of thoughts and say, oh, that must be who I am. Because I thought that way. That thought didn't come from you. You have to understand that the enemy has access to your mind. That depending on regions you are in, there are demonic spirits that fire thoughts of arrows at people's minds. And thoughts that you would think are random and you just reject naturally. Like, why would I do that? There are other people who take that arrow and they think on it. And it becomes a stronghold in their life. And that thought never originated from them. What did Pastor Cowley teach us to do this summer? That's not my thought. That's what you do when the enemy sends any thought that's against the word of God in your life. Any thought of care, worry, anxiety. That's not my thought. Dad Hagen said it this way. You can't control the birds that fly above your head, but you sure can control and stop them from building a nest in your hair. You can't stop all these birds from flying above you, but you can stop them from building a nest. You can't control every thought that comes through your mind but you can stop it from becoming a stronghold in your life. You don't have to take it. Just because the thought comes in, you don't have to, the way you take it is continue to think on it and then begin to say it. So now, even though the thought was never you, now you claimed it as yourself. And he said, well, this is who I am. Now you're aligning yourself with the demonic identity Satan's given you. Reject the thoughts. Go to Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. You do not have to be full of worry and anxiety. In an age where anxiety is increasing by the second, where people are having panic attacks, you don't have to be one of them. You can stop it when it's just a thought. You can stop it when it's just an arrow of the enemy. Philippians chapter 4, verse 6. Be careful or don't be anxious about anything. Don't be full of anxiety about anything. Don't worry about anything. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. So instead of worrying, instead of being full of anxiety about an issue, when something comes up, take it to God in prayer. Now, don't pray out of fear. Oh, God, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? God, you know all I've been through. Oh, you know my uprising and my downfall. Oh, look at this problem. What am I going to do? No, that's not faith. That's not even a prayer. God hears. The situation comes up. Find a scripture about that situation. Take it to God and say, Father, based on this scripture in your word, I'm asking for this outcome. I receive it and I thank you for it. Now, why do you thank someone? It's just polite to thank somebody after they gave you something. How many of you taught that? Say thank you. 
1 John 5, 14 and 15 says, if you pray according to his will, God hears you. And if he hears you, you have what you asked for, right? God's word is his will. So if you pray according to his will, by the time you say amen, you should say thank you because you have it. So, well, Pastor, what happens if the thought of anxiety comes back? You said, nope, that's not my thought, Father. I thank you. You've already solved that for me. Because if you do that, Paul says, and the peace of God that passes all understanding shall guard your hearts and minds through Christ Jesus. So now you have a guard around your mind. Instead of being anxious, instead of being stressed out, you're at peace. Because you've cast your thoughts and you've learned how to pray about things instead of worry about things. And then Paul adds some additional things about your mental life. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of a good report, if there be any virtue, if there be any praise, think on these things. You must control your thought life. If you don't control it, someone else will for you. So refusing, refusing, refusing to cast your care and deciding to worry instead will open a door for Satan to gain a foothold in your home so that he can advance and further progress and to turn your home into a haunted house. Go to Job chapter 3, verse 25. Is your home the house of faith or a haunted house? Job chapter 3, verse 25. Job chapter 3, verse 25. Now, we know the story of Job. When you study out chapter 1 and parts of chapter 2, you see a story. It starts off saying that he was the richest man in the entire East. Some translations say he was the most influential man in the entire East. It talks about all the stuff he had. This was one rich dude. This was one blessed dude. He had 10 kids, and each of his kids had their own house. Now, they weren't small houses. They were big houses because they would throw feasts on their days. And invite all their siblings to come and party with them. Now, that's some money that if you have a feast every day just because you want it and you all switch houses. They're partying all the time. He's the richest and most influential man in the Bible says he was just. He was upright. He loved God. He was living right. But after every party, it says Job will wake up, wake up early in the morning and offer sacrifices. That's good, right? Under that covenant, offer sacrifice. This is what you're supposed to do. He's a priest of his home. Great. Praise God. But then it says he did it saying, peradventure, one of my sons, while they're a party, may have cursed God in their hearts. So notice now this sacrifice is not being made out of faith. It's being made out of fear. See, sometimes you can do the right thing, but because you did it the wrong way, you opened the door. How do we know Job opened the door? Job 3, verse 25. For the thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. The Hebrew even says, I feared a fear, and it came on me. So as Job was offering sacrifices every day, he was doing the right thing, but because it wasn't in faith, it was in fear. And what happened? You keep reading chapter 1, and it says, Satan appears before God. God says, where you come from? Oh, you know, walking here and there, going back and forth. And God says, have you 
considered my servant Job? Now remember, Satan's not omniscient. He doesn't see everything. He doesn't know everything. He's been watching Job. So it's not God's idea to bring up the conversation. This is the reason why Satan showed up. Because he said, there's a hedge around him. I can't get to him. The only reason you know that is because you've been watching. He has been watching for a long time trying to figure out how can I take down Job? How can I take down this rich and influential man who loves God? How can I take him down? He's watching. I can't touch him. You put a hedge around him and you bless everything he has. Satan is upset. He accuses Job's motives as if you take everything away from him, he'll curse you. What did God say to him? Everything he has is in your hand. Now, wait a minute. Then he says, but you can't touch him. Notice this. Did God give Job stuff to Satan? No. God says it's already in your hand. Job gave his stuff to Satan. Job was in a hedge that Satan couldn't get to. But when he was in fear, he opened the door and took all of his things and put it in Satan's hand. But out of the mercy of God, God told Satan, you can't kill him. Even though he's put himself in this position, I limit what you can do. We know how the story goes. Disaster comes in. Satan has everything now. All his children die. He loses all of his money, all of his business. He loses his health. And it finally comes to his wife, comes up to him, looks at him, says, why don't you curse God and die too? When his friends came to visit him to comfort him, they say he doesn't even look like himself. It's so bad, and Job looks so bad, they don't talk for a week. They just look at each other. That's how bad it's gotten. And what opened the door to it? Fear. Job 3, 25, in the message version says it this way. Instead of bread, I get groans for my supper. Then leave the table and vomit my anguish. The worst of my fears has come true. What I've dreaded most has happened. My repose is shattered, my peace destroyed. No rest for me ever. Death has invaded life. Satan was able to invade Job's home through the foothold of fear. Satan is fear personified. Satan himself is afraid and seeks to cause people to live in fear. That's why when you make a stand in faith, the only thing Satan can say is, but what if? He brings doubt. He brings unbelief. He brings fear. Why? He is fear personified. Go to Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. Hebrews 2, verse 14. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 14. It says, For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself, Jesus, likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetimes subject to bondage. Satan seeks to control people through the fear of death. Now, if someone's afraid of flying, they're not afraid of flying. They're afraid of crashing and dying. You're not afraid of swimming. They're afraid of drowning. The fear of death is a master fear. 
and is the root of most people's fears. People who are afraid to lose their job take it down to its root. Well, if I lose my job, I lose my money. I, can't, I don't have a place to stay, so I'm going to freeze to death. Well, if I don't have enough money, I don't have enough food, so I'm going to starve to death. Even people who are afraid of speaking in front of people, you're afraid that you're going to see a wrong thing and they'll think something different of you. But man, maybe if they go Old Testament and stone you. That's the extreme root of it. So Satan uses fear to control people, to keep them in place, to march along in satanic and demonic bondage and slavery. You see, Isaiah 54, 14 says, In righteousness shall you be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. So notice it says, You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear. Notice the connection. So if you're far from, if you don't fear, you're far from oppression. But if you're afraid, you can be buddies with oppression. Go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. 1 John chapter 4, verse 18. But it seems so normal and human to be afraid. You know, they even say, oh, but little fear is good for you. Oh, it's okay to be afraid. See, fear tolerated is faith contaminated. Fear tolerated is faith contaminated. You don't allow fear to grow in your house. You challenge fear. Don't teach your kids to be afraid. Challenge it. I remember growing up, we grew up in the house of faith. Here, Pastor David talk about it. Hear me tell different stories. That our reactions to things are a little bit different because we grew up in the faith message, in the faith movement. And so if we, when we were little, if we had nightmares or something, like a lot of kids do, you run to your parents and you talk to them, the response was, oh, it's okay, go back to sleep. Yeah, it is okay, but let's deal with this fear. So what do we do? So some of you remember about 10, 20 years ago, one of the really popular Christian artists of that time was Carmen. And he had a song for everything. And because I grew up in the house of faith, I literally knew all of his songs, like verbatim, lyric by lyric. I still do. A couple years ago, I was playing. I was telling uh, my wife about different things I watched growing up, and I played it. And she was watching my mouth move at the song going on. She's like, you still know all these words. I'm saying I listened to it so many times. There was one song he did called No Monsters. And so the whole purpose of that song was for kids when they're afraid because something scary has happened or they've seen something scary, how they respond to the spirit of fear. So what was I doing? Putting the word in our mouth, how we respond to it. So that even when we go back to bed, we're not in fear. We're back in faith. You don't let fear grow in your house. You challenge it. So even if they say they're afraid, let them express their emotion. Let them express how you feel. Teach them how to deal with it and get them to back to a place of faith. Don't teach and encourage fear in your home because that just opens the door to the enemy. Well, they say a little fear is good for you. No, it's not. Because when you look at the book of Revelation, when it talks about the people heading to the lake of fire, it talks about murderers and witches and thieves and all these evil lists. But at the top of the list says the fearful. Now, I don't know about you. I don't want to be in the list of those who are heading to burn forever. Georgia was hot enough this summer. We went on the way to preach in Africa last year. We had a stopover in a Middle Eastern country. And at 8 p.m. was like 105, 110 degrees. And because it's a Muslim country, we're respected their culture and their customs. We have full jeans on. We're fully covered. If I was there any longer, I might have got one of their garbs. They'll say, y'all look comfortable. I look like I'm sweating. 
but it's hot. Hell, it's much hotter. I don't want to burn forever. Anybody? Anybody want to burn forever? No, 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 no. So why would I want to be at the top of the list of the, those who burn forever? God has seen fear as okay. That's why 365 times in the Bible he says, fear not or do not be afraid. When Jairus has got the news that his daughter had died, what was the first thing Jesus said? Fear not. He put a stop to fear. When he's walking on the water talking to the disciples, why are you so fearful? Every time Jesus was putting a stop to fear, even when angels would appear to people, they would say, don't be afraid. God sent me to give you a message. Don't stop what God's trying to do because you got scared because I shine up and look bright. It's always checking fear. You have to be the same way. Don't let fear grow in your house. Don't let fear grow in your heart. 1 John 4, 18 says, there's no fear in love, but perfect, mature, grown-up love cast out or evicts fear because fear has torment. This word for torment is the same word that describes the torment of hell. Fear brings the torment of hell into your life. He that fears is not made perfect or grown up or mature in love. Meditating and thinking and saying how much God loves you evicts fear. If your thought process is all the time, God loves me, God loves me, God loves me. And based on John 17, 23, God loves me as much as he loves Jesus. And you say that continually, it flushes out fear. And fear doesn't have a place to grab you. It has a place to stay home because you've evicted fear. Just like people evict people from houses and apartments, you need to evict fear from your heart. Don't give fear a place to stay. Check every single fear. Flush it out with God loves me. With meditations on the love of God. Sing songs about the love of God. Doesn't have to be a deep song. Be very simple. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. This is one of the songs that we have our daughter sing every night before she goes to bed. Because not only are we growing her in faith, we're growing up in the revelation of how much God loves her. Why? Because if she grows in that revelation, fear will never have a place in her life. You have to teach your kids faith about how much God loves them. They need to know you love them. But you always remind them, yeah, I love you. Oh, you don't know how much I love you. I love you so much. But even more than I can love you, Jesus loves you. They need to be confident in God's love for them because that pushes out fear. You must say no to fear and continually develop your belief in God's love for you. The more you think on how much God loves you, fear won't have a place to stay in your life. But refusing, refusing to resist fear will open a door for Satan to have a foothold in your life where he can advance and turn your house into a haunted house. Go to 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. Let's pick it up. 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 10. So when you read 1 Corinthians, Paul's getting the church at Corinth together. They had a lot of issues going on. And so there's so many issues going on, but there's one issue in particular that Paul calls out this individual, not by name, but everybody knew who he was talking about. Their response to the issue, how people reacted and the persons were out, they repented and they felt so bad. They were kind of exiled, but the church was ready to forgive them. The person repented was ready to live right. And as a result, Paul's writing to them and says, hey, if you forgive someone, I forgave them. I forgave them in Jesus. 
So it's not an issue. I don't forgive them. I forgave them already. So while Paul is talking about forgiveness, forgiving this individual, he gets to verse 11. Lest Satan should get advantage of us, for we are not ignorant of his devices. See, a device, strategy, or scheme of Satan is to tempt people to stay in unforgiveness. A device, strategy, or scheme of Satan is to tempt people to stay in unforgiveness. A person who stays in unforgiveness has given Satan the advantage over them. So every time you decide not to forgive somebody, you're saying, Satan, take advantage of me. Satan, get the upper hand. Satan, go ahead. Move on in. I got your guest room ready. Refusing, refusing to forgive everybody of everything will give Satan a foothold to advance and turn your home into a haunted house. Go to 2 Timothy chapter 2. We talked about last, a couple of weeks ago when we looked at what Peter said concerning married couples and if they don't treat each other right, how their prayers won't be answered or heard. And I posed this question to you. I said, what unforgiveness, what offense is worth you not getting your prayers heard? What grudge is worth you not getting an answer from God? What grudge is worth the blessing of the Lord? No, you got to forgive everybody of everything. Well, but I was right. And. Great. Well done. But if you don't forgive them, you may have been right. But now you're not righteous. Acting. You are the righteous of God in Christ Jesus. But your conduct should match that. So even if you're right, you still have to forgive everybody of everything and let it go. Because if you hold on to it, you'll stop the power of God from working in your life. That's why one of the things you probably should say every day is, I forgive everybody of everything. Well, I'm not offended at anybody. It's good practice. Whatever you practice, you'll perfect. There are some tremendous athletes. They may be the greatest in their game, but they still practice all the time. Why? They want to continue to be great. They want to continue to perfect their game. You keep practicing forgiveness. So when unforgiveness tempts you, it's easier for you to forgive. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 22. Paul tells Timothy, flee also youthful lust, but follow righteousness, faith, charity, peace with them that call on the Lord out of a pure heart. But foolish and unlearned questions avoid, knowing that they gender strife. He's telling them, avoid these type of conversations altogether. You don't have to answer everybody. Jesus even ignores some people. Remember when they brought the woman caught in the adultery? They tried to egg Jesus on. What do you want us to do? He ignored them. Rode in the sand, drew a pretty picture, something. The Bible doesn't tell us what he wrote. He ignored them. You don't have to get into every debate that's full of strife. Just because people are debating on Facebook does not mean you have to join in. But especially if you're gifted at debating, you know you can really take it to somebody. It may be a temptation. I'm going to join in. My younger brother is in his third year of law school. He is a gifted debater. He's a lawyer. God's gifted him in that area. But one of the things we say for years, I tell him, it's not your job to fix stupid. It's not your job to address every single ignorance you see on Facebook. You know, Dad Hagen said it this way. Let the ignorant 
Be ignorant still. Unless God tells you to say something, don't say something. Jesus even said, don't cast your pearls before swine. You don't have to talk to every single scoffer, every single scorner. That's why Paul's telling Timothy, don't engage with them. Don't even answer those questions. But as he keeps on going, what does he say? And the servant of the Lord must not strive, or the servant of God must not be full of strife, but be gentle unto all, apt to teach, and patient, and meekness, instructing those that oppose themselves. Who are the ones who are opposing themselves? Those who are answer, asking these foolish and unlearned questions that gender strife. The strife people are the people that oppose themselves. Say, strife people oppose themselves. Notice what Paul goes on to say. If God peradventure would give them repentance to the acknowledge of the truth that they, say, strife people, may recover themselves out of the snare or the trap of the devil who are taken captive by him at his will. Paul tells Timothy, you don't engage with strife people the way they communicate with you. You're gentle, you're apt to teach, you don't talk the way they talk. Because maybe through your ministry, the strife people will get out of the trap of the enemy. So notice, everybody who's full of strife is already in a trap. But it gets worse because it says they are taken captive by the devil at his will. So there's people full of strife, spreading strife everywhere they go. They think they're good, but they don't realize they're in Satan's trap. And whenever he wants them, he can grab them and make them prisoner of wars. So they just keep on living and living and running their mouth and running their mouth and running their mouth and running their mouth. And all of a sudden, they're a prisoner of war. Whenever Satan wanted them. You say, well, I've been watching this person for a long time. Nothing seemed to happen. Satan's just biding his time. He is a strategist. He's watching for the opportune time to take them. Strife puts you in position to be taken captive by the enemy. Refusing, refusing to stay out of strife will give Satan the advantage of a foothold in your life enabling him to advance and turn your home into a haunted house. Go to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26. You just got to make a decision. I'm not going to be offended. You make that in advance. It's election season. You need to double up on that decision. I ain't going to be offended. That ad is not going to offend me. That tweet is not going to offend me. That newscast is not going to offend me. Why? Being offense is not worth the blessing that I'm believing for. What I'm praying about is not going to be canceled because I choose to get offended. You got to make a decision. I forgive everybody of everything. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 26 and 27. Let's look at the context of the verse that we had read previously. Be ye angry and sin not. Let not the sun go down upon your wrath, neither give place to the devil. The Amplified Classic Edition says, leave no such room or foothold for the devil Give no opportunity to him. See, it's not a sin to be angry. It's a sin to stay angry. Someone asked me recently, he's talking about, well, isn't that a marriage verse? No. It's not talking about marriage anywhere in this verse. It doesn't even bring up marriage to a whole other chapter. This is a verse for every single Christian. Every single Christian. It's not a sin to be angry. It's a sin to Stay angry. It goes on and says, don't let the sun go down on your wrath. 
So that means your anger can't last more than 24 hours. If it goes longer than 24 hours, you're in sin. If your anger goes longer than a day, you are now in sin. So that means when you get angry, you may be right to be angry. It's not wrong to be angry, but deal with your anger. Do what you need to do. Maybe you need to go run five miles. Maybe you need to do 50 push-ups like Minister Lemons over there. Well, no, he does like 500. Was it 500? 5,000? Something super. <laughs> Maybe you need to watch something funny. Whatever you need to do, deal with your anger. Make a decision to forgive and move on. Now, pastor, what am I going to do? I might get angry again. You will get angry again. Just remind yourself, I forgave them. I let it go. So what happens if I keep getting angry? Tell your flesh, look, if you keep messing me with this, I'm going to go bless that person. I'm going to go put some money in their hands. Your flesh will calm down real quick. <laughs> or I'm going to go buy them a good meal. Oh, no, we good. <laughs> you got to deal with your anger. Because staying in anger opens the door to the enemy. Refusing. Refusing to deal with your anger will give Satan a foothold in your life where he can advance and turn your home into a haunted house. Look what the Amplified Version says of the scripture. And do not give the devil an opportunity to lead you into sin by holding a grudge or nurturing anger or harboring resentment or cultivating bitterness. Nurturing anger and cultivating bitterness. What did Marilyn Hickey used to say about not nursing stuff by rehearsing it? So you keep rehearsing what happened to you and how you felt in that moment. I'm not talking about you're talking to a person who's your prayer partner. You're talking to getting counseling on the issue, and you're bringing it up so they can help you heal. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about you calling everybody you know so somebody agrees with you or pities you. What's going to happen? You don't get angrier. That's not healing. That's not healthy. You're just running your mouth. You keep rehearsing it and rehearsing it and rehearsing it. You're nurturing anger and you're cultivating bitterness. See, Hebrews chapter 12, verse 14 says, Follow peace with all men and holiness without no, which no man shall see the Lord. Verse 15, looking diligently, lest any man fail of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness springing up trouble you, and thereby many, many, Many be defiled. Notice it's a root of bitterness. Root. Roots don't just appear. They come from seeds. So that means something happened and a seed of bitterness came in. And instead of dealing with it, instead of dealing with anger, instead of dealing with that feeling, instead of giving it to God and processing it correctly, you kept rehearsing it. You kept thinking about it. You kept talking about it. You kept watering it. You kept feeding it, and now it's a root. And because it's a root, it is now producing fruit. And that fruit is causing many people to be defiled. And now you go and tell people what to do and what not to do. You call it wisdom, but it's actually bitterness. And now other people are becoming bitter because of your life. You're a holy person of God, yet you're now defiling others. Acts chapter 8, very interesting story to me. 
Acts chapter 8, it's a revival going on. It's an awakening. Philip goes down and preaches. People get saved. People get healed. The joy has fallen. Peter and John go and minister the baptism of the Holy Ghost. People are getting filled with the Holy Ghost. And there's this person that got saved under Philip's ministry. He was a sorcerer. He was a major warlock in the area. They called him the power of God. People were amazed by him. But when Philip started preaching, people stopped paying attention to the sorcerer. Philip's ministry was so dynamic, so anointed, the sorcerer got saved. He got saved. Simon the sorcerer is saved now. Now he's watching Peter and John minister, and everybody they touch is filled with the Holy Ghost and begins to speak in other tongues. So when we look at Acts 8.18, and when Simon saw that through the laying on of the apostles' hands the Holy Ghost was given, he offered them money, saying, Give me also this power that on whomsoever I lay hands he may receive the Holy Ghost. Now, Simon's heart wasn't pure, saying, well, man, this Holy Ghost is amazing. Maybe if I get in on this ministry, more people can get filled with the Holy Ghost. That is not Simon's heart. Simon's heart was, people used to look at me the way they look at Peter and John and Philip. I want to be a somebody again. I want to be the power of God again. I want people to look at me and go, whoa. So maybe I can buy this. And Peter said, may your money die with you. Because you have thought that the gift, free gift of God, may be purchased with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. The word matter there in the Greek means utterance. You don't have part or lot in the speaking in other tongues. For your heart is not right in the sight of God. But he saved. He got born again. But Peter says, your heart is not right, Christian. What do you do if your heart's not right? Repent. Even in the age of grace, you can still repent. Therefore, of this, your wickedness, your twistness, and pray, God, that perhaps a thought of your heart may be forgiven you. For I perceive that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. See, gall of bitterness is also defined as bitter jealousy. Bitter jealousy. Simon is bitterly jealous of Peter and John and Philip. He wants people to look at him a certain way again. This phrase, gall of bitterness, also is defined as bile that breaks down. It's like the acid in your stomach. And so now, Simon, bitterly jealous, is in the bond of iniquity. See, it did not, he didn't stop this bitterness when it was a seed. It began to produce a root, and it led him to a place where now he's bound by sin. But he's a Christian. See, if this continues, your heart will become hard too. It's like what Hebrews says, many are defiled. You keep vomiting this bile of bitterness. And people become bitter just because they came in contact with you. Instead of experiencing Jesus, they experience your bile. They experience your spiritual vomit. Whether you say it in person or you put it online, it's still vomit. Instead of spreading holiness and love and joy and peace, you're spreading bitterness. Christian. He's not talking to a sinner. He's talking to a Christian. See, refusing, refusing, refusing to deal with anger and resentment and bitterness will give Satan a foothold in your life. 
enabling him to advance and turn your home into a haunted house. Let's go to 1 Samuel 15 and close here. 1 Samuel 15, we're going to close here. Minister Dathan, you can go ahead and get ready. 1 Samuel chapter 15. Verse 23. Another interesting story. Saul, the man God picked. They, the people didn't pick him. God picked him. The man God anointed. The people didn't know him. God anointed him to be the first king of Israel. Starts out with a wonderful reign. Every he, everything he does prospers. Everything he works, everything he does works. Everywhere he goes, he has success. But it starts to get to him, and he starts doing his own thing. God sent Samuel, the prophet of God, the man of God. He says, I want you to go deal with this enemy army. Destroy them all. Don't take anything for yourself. So they go and fight. They destroy the enemy army. But they decide to keep all this stuff when God told them not to. The prophet of God gets there. Saul greets him warmly. Samuel, good to see you, dude. How you been? So did not God tell you the story? I think, yes, I did what God said. Then Samuel goes, then why do I hear some sheep bawling? What's that bye I hear? Well, I know what God said, but I decided to keep some of this so I can make a sacrifice. He's trying to play the prophet. And the prophet says, look, not my first go around. Does God... Take pleasure in sacrifices or obedience. Now, while Samuel is going off, he says, by the Holy Ghost, for rebellion is as a sin of what? For rebellion is as a sin of what? And what? What? Is as iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord again, dude. He has also rejected you from being king. Notice God didn't reject Saul as a person. He rejected him from the office he was placed in. Rebellion can cost you your place. For rebellion is as dangerous as witchcraft. Stubbornness to obey is as dangerous as worshiping demonic idols. Just as witchcraft and idolatry open the doors for Satan and his demons to flow, and they surely do, into your house, so does rebellion and stubbornness. Just like witchcraft and worshiping demonic idols opens the door for Satan and his demons to flow into your house, so does rebellion and stubbornness. Notice how often I said refusing today. If you refuse to do this, if you refuse to do that, if you refuse to do that, Another word for refuse, if you decide to rebel, if you rebel against the word of God, if you reject the word of God, you're in rebellion, Christian. You refusing to do the will of God, to do the word of God, is outright rebellion. I'm not talking about areas where you're praying about to get clarity so you can do it right. I'm not talking about areas you've been slowing because you're trying to figure out the best way to do what God's called you to do. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about things in your heart that the Holy Ghost has convicted you of. If you're in this room or online, he's convicted you of, and you made a decision, I'm going to do what I want you to do. You are now the proud. 
and you're in rebellion. And that's as dangerous as witchcraft. You being stubborn to do what God has called you to do is the same as worshiping a demonic idol. If you're in rebellion, what do you do? You must repent. You must turn from your current path and change your mind. You must give God your full and unconditional yes today. You have to give him your yes. See, one of the things you have to understand, you have to understand that when you're doing these things, when you're in rebellion, it's not God punishing you. God punished Jesus so he wouldn't have to punish you. God put your rebellion, your iniquity, your sin on Jesus. So it's not God doing things to teach you a lesson. It's in your rebellion you opened the door for Satan to move in and gave him a foothold so he can advance his attack in your life. God didn't do it. He came to give you life more abundantly. But there is a devil who comes to steal, kill, and destroy. And in a rebellion, you open the door. You decided you know better than God. You come to church with your churchy phrases. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. Hey, I felt something today. Well, I'm glad you felt something because you got a roommate who's out to kill you. You must deal with it. And you must deal with it now. Stand to your feet. This message is primarily directed towards Christians. Close your eyes. Search your heart. Are you in rebellion? Are there some things in your life that God told you to stop doing or not to do, and you're doing it anyways? That's rebellion. Search your heart right now. Because whatever God tells you to do is for your good. It's for your betterment. Because he loves you. He knows the plans that he has for you. Plans of peace. Good plans. To give you an expected end or end that you hope for. There's some of you in here today, you know God is dealing with your heart right now. And you need to repent. I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm just saying you need to repent. For the days we're going into, your heart must be right before God. Keep searching your heart as Minister Dathan begins to sing. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. Yes, Lord.
some of you already know you need to get your heart right. And some of you even felt in your heart, I need to come to the altar and get my life right. If that's you, come down now. Don't wait for someone else to come down. If you know you're supposed to be at the altar getting your heart right before God, you come down right now. You come kneel, you can come stand. If you know you're supposed to be up here, get up here. Get your heart right. this experience last week a tongue and interpretation came forward and one of the things the Lord said is that we're entering into days of all when I heard that phrase I first began to think of different things in the Old Testament and I searched out that phrase and it wasn't there in the King James or in other versions so as I began to research that phrase I knew I heard it before I found out that it pertained, pertained to the days around Yom Kippur on the Jewish calendar Days of awe meant for them days of self-introspection, where they examined their heart, where they see if there were errors of their life they needed to repent and get right before God, so that they can start their year off right before God. We're entering into days of awe. We need to make sure our heart is right before God, because these aren't just the days of awe where we get our hearts right. The days we're entering into, we'll see at the end of this year and next year, as the Lord has already told us. There are going to be days where we stand in awe of God. Where we realize He truly is the God that does wonders. But so that you can partake of all those good things. So that you can be on the blessed side of the judgment, not on the side that gets the wages that come to them. You need to get your heart right right now. There's more people that are supposed to be at the altar. Don't be proud. You say, well, I think I'm supposed to be. Don't think. Get up here. If that's you, you come get your heart right. I'm not sending you to a separate ministry room. It's your time to talk to God. And if you're up here, you go ahead and talk to God. He'll help you out. I'm going to sing this one more time. And if you're staying in the congregation, you just sing it with Minister David right now. And give God your full yes. Yes, Lord. Yes. Yes, Lord. Yes, 
hallelujah to Jesus. Hallelujah forevermore. So some of you just need to sing that song throughout the week. Or hum it under your breath. Just say yes. So I don't know what he's asking me to do yet. Just say yes in advance. Because he's going to tell you to do something for your good. If you'd like some of those old church mothers, they sang yes all day long. That's all they did. They just sang yes. And that's a good, good, good practice for us. Just tell Jesus yes. Some people, yeah, that's what it's for. Some people will go, well, I'll say yes, but I need to figure out how to do it. No, don't figure it out. Because you're not able to figure it out by yourself. Just give God your yes in advance. If you tell him yes, he'll help you figure it out. That's someone else in here. You didn't come down here, but you need to. I'm going to pause one more time. Just one more time. If that's you, says, I didn't know how to do it. But if I give God my yes, he'll help me do it? Yes. If that's you, you come down now. See, there's obedience by obeying the prompting of the Spirit of God. There's blessings that are poured out. He'll show you exactly what to do. You just give him your yes. So I'll give him my yes when I get home. That's still delayed obedience, which is disobedience. See, when the Holy Ghost pauses experiences in times like this, it's for your good. That there are things that you do now which will trigger blessings later. So if there's anyone else, say yes today. I hope you enjoyed today's message. We never want to close a broadcast without giving you an opportunity to make Jesus the Lord of your life. So if you've never asked him into your heart, you've never made him your Lord and Savior, pray this prayer with me today and mean it from your heart. Say, Heavenly Father, I believe that Jesus is your son. I believe that he died for me, but on the third day, you raised him from the dead. Dear Lord Jesus, come into my heart. Save me now. Forgive me of my sins. Fill me with your spirit and help me to live this Christian life. If you prayed that prayer and meant it from your heart, we believe you've been born again. We ask that you email us at info at FCCGA.com. That's FCCGA.com to let us know about the decision you've made for Christ today. Have an amazing day.